the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Well, brand new year, brand new day. We welcome you into the Wednesday, January 5th edition of Lifeline. How are you? Hope uh, so far into the new year. You're doing okay, and uh, we got a lot to talk about on today's show. A little bit later on, there has been um, a push by members of the Senate, some members of the Senate, to uh, enact the so-called PRO Act, and uh, we're going to talk a bit about that, and while it seems on the surface to be an attempt to try to kind of bring Amazon and Walmart to the table and allow workers with those two big companies to unionize... There is more to this than meets the eye, (laughs) as usual. It's the old adage that what the big print giveth, the little print taketh away. We're going to talk a bit about what exactly is behind all of this. Gabriella Hoffman joins us with the Independent Women's Forum. It's coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. Also, Todd Nettleton will stop by for a visit, host of Voice of the Martyrs radio program. New Year, yes, indeed, but a lot of the same old prejudices. And uh, we're going to take a look at the growing number of nations that have not only cultural and familial harassment against believers, but institutionalized, meaning government-sponsored harassment. And it's, it's a pretty troubling list. We'll get to those details coming up later on in tonight's program. But speaking of the new year, while normally we sort of do the reset, right? We bury the, new, the old year nice and deep and think about all the wonderful things that will be awaiting us come the brand new year. Um, this year, maybe you found it a bit more difficult to do that. Maybe your experience was for the second New Year's in a row, you found it a bit difficult to do that. Largely because I would imagine that most Americans, if polled 12 months ago, would have thought that, well, we'll be anticipating in 2021 the decline and eventual disappearance of COVID, (laughs) only to be met by a ramping up of the impact of COVID. So as long as COVID is here to, um, to be with us, how do we manage all of this? And what about people that are really struggling with um, not just the after effects of a devastating year in 2021 on top of the devastating year of 2020, now wondering what does 2022 hold? With some insights to these questions and most importantly, how we can begin to use um, skills in order to deal with moments of depression and all that um, COVID has brought us. We're joined by Dr. Greg Jantz. He, of course, is the founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources called A Place of Hope. He's a certified counselor, 
both in the arenas of addiction and eating disorders, where he specializes. He's the author of more than 26 best-selling books, including his most recent, Social Media and Depression. And Dr. Jantz, always a delight and a privilege to have you with us. Oh, good to be with you. And here we go, 2022. We were trying to think of a motto, and we're, we're saying around here, be the best you in 2022. Yeah. I like that idea. Yeah. We've got to deal with the anxiety, though. It's something to aspire to, no doubt about it. And, of course, it is it is a challenge that all of us are facing. You know, uh, kind of the, the, the collective experience, not only across the nation, but across the planet, that we thought we would get through all of this in 2021 and move into a new year. And all of a sudden we find that a lot of the, the, uh, the ghosts that were chasing us in the last year have followed us into the new year. And with that, a lot of folks just don't know how to manage this. And a lot of folks are feeling as if there's a degree to which the hope of a new year has been stolen from them. Talk to us a bit about what you're hearing from folks across the nation, Dr. Jantz, in terms of just the challenge of being able to kind of get that sense of renewed hope coming into a new year with a lot of the old year's troubles and tribulations. You know, we're hearing a lot and seeing a lot and I'll, I'll use one word, weary. There's a weariness, and with that weariness is a fear about the future. We've been living the last two years with a lot of unknowns, but what makes it especially difficult is everything keeps changing. So what you thought might have been true is not, and so that uncertainty has really added a lot of anxiety to what people are, are feeling about the future, and I really do mean we've got to use this year to grow strong in ourselves and our faith. But um, understanding that anxiety really is at an all-time high. Now, anxiety is something that all of us from time to time deal with. Uh, certainly there are more severe forms, lesser severe forms, that anxiety can run the gambit of going out on a new date with somebody you've never met before and you're concerned about how that's going to go to landing the new job and what the first day at work is going to be. People struggle with anxiety over things like not being able to pay the bills. And and, 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 and to a great degree, help us understand in, in terms of what's going on psychologically and, and, and physiologically when we're dealing with anxiety. Help us understand exactly what that is. Yes. Well, anxiety begins to play in our mind, well, what if this happens, or what if this doesn't happen, or what if, and we recycle all those what ifs, and we get filled with worry, and then we start to kind of distort reality. If we have too much anxiety in our lives for too long, we want to isolate, we want to hide, uh, we want to escape, and, and some people start using substances or alcohol or searching for the magic pill, because that anxiety begins to push you over to the edge of despair. And the edge of despair feels like, I, I, can't, I can't function. And so that's the journey that anxiety can take you down. And what we want to do is we want to step in and go, no, let's intervene. Um, we understand that there's a lot of things right now in our world that are truly beyond our control, um, but how am I going to live my life and not be filled with anxiety? And that's, that's the question we're hearing. So as part of this uh, sense of sort of the fear of the unknown, fear of what it is that we can't control, 
and then that kind of creates and, and builds upon itself, and, and suddenly we're we're seeing potential dangers in places where otherwise, if our thinking was not clouded by that overwhelming sense of anxiety, we might be able to sort of rationalize or think through and say, well, you know, what are the chances? But, you know, we, we are surrounded by bad news seemingly every day, and, and some people, I think, kind of get addicted to all of that. And I wonder if that ultimately winds up feeding into a lot of that anxiety and and worry over things that may never, ever come to fruition. But just the very thought of the possibility can, for some people, Dr. Jantz, be crippling emotionally and otherwise. Oh, absolutely. And those fears of the unknown and what's going to happen. Or, and we begin, when you have fear and it distorts reality, we begin to fill in the blanks. Now, when we have anxiety, we kind of put the worst possible in there. Um, and what we're finding, there's, there's a couple types of anxiety that's really on the increase. One of them is social anxiety. Uh, you know, people were isolated for so long, <laughs> quarantined, and they still are hiding behind masks, depending on where you live, and there's a lot of fear out there. So what this does is it makes you afraid of people. It's like, oh, we have all these new rules now. It's like, do I shake their hand or do I hug them um, or what? People don't know what to do socially anymore. And so that creates anxiety. And I would imagine, conversely so, some of the isolation, which a lot of us have been forced into, perhaps uh, not only out of fear, but, but out of circumstances beyond our own control, jobs that told us work from home, all of a sudden now that engagement with with other human beings on a regular basis has been significantly curtailed. And so you, you add to not only that sense of anxiety of the isolation coupled with, and if I don't isolate, am I putting myself, am I putting my family at risk? Wow. I mean, this has got to be a time when folks in your profession are really stretched to the nth degree because we've got uh, uh, an increasing percentage of the population that has fear of not going out and the other half that has fear of going out. You know, exactly. And so there's fear on both both sides. And then there's the fear of, I don't know what to believe. What's true anymore? Uh, there's a lot of distrust. So when there's distrust, that breeds anxiety. And by the way, you, you know if you have anxiety, you're... you're, you're your heart from time to time may race. You may find it difficult to concentrate. Anxiety affects us in that front of our uh, prefrontal cortex, that part of our brain in the, by the forehead there. And that's where we need to concentrate, make good decisions. Um, but anxiety really, it makes it hard to make a decision. I can't think clearly. I can't make a decision. Uh, it's probably affecting your sleep. Um, so many folks, I used to work in sleep research, what we find now and, and clients coming to see us is that they have such disruptive sleep at night that they may wake up, it may be three in the morning, and their heart's racing, they're gasping for air, and in essence, they're having a panic attack when they sleep. A lot of folks eavesdropping on our conversation right now, maybe you're getting a little bit of a sense of comfort just in knowing that they're not alone in all of this, that there has been a shared experience here in terms of that ramp-up of a fear of the unknown, fear of mixed information, not knowing who or what to believe, uh, coupled with the isolation, then some of experience, and then the fear of getting together, even if you want to. All of these sort of conspire against us, and if we don't have the proper coping skills 
in order to take us through these experiences. For some people, that anxiety can lead to levels of depression that can not only be crippling in terms of just day-to-day engagement in life, but, but equally so people that feel as if they're losing not only a grasp of reality, but they're losing hope. How do we begin to face our fears and be able to delineate between what is a real fear? Because sometimes fear can be a healthy thing. If you have fear of falling down the stairs, you want to be careful walking downstairs. Well, that can be a good thing. But if that fear overcomes you to the point where it's not just a matter of making sure you're wearing good solid shoes and grabbing the handrail going down, but now all of a sudden you feel as if you can't go down the stairs at all. You're stuck on the second floor. Imagine what that can do to one's life. How do we develop the skills? We're going to talk about that when we continue our conversation with Dr. Greg Jantz. He is not only a best-selling author, but the founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources called A Place of Hope. Information available on the web at aplaceofhope.com. That's aplaceofhope.com. Learning to identify the skills that we need to confront anxiety, deal with depression, and face our fears head on. That conversation continues with Dr. Greg Jantz as Lifeline continues after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. We continue our visit today with best-selling author, the founder of the Center for Counseling and Health Resources, A Place of Hope, Dr. Greg Jans. We're talking about that kind of post-year anxiety. Normally, we shed all of the worries of the year behind us, and we move into a new year with a sense of um, hopefulness and anticipation. But sadly, for growing percentages of Americans, we're dealing with kind of that sense of foreboding that this is entering the year number three of COVID. My goodness. Some of us have skills and we're able to manage and cope through all of this, but not everybody's equipped with those skills. It doesn't make you bad. It just makes you a person that... um, facing some challenges. And how do we go about then understanding uh, division between false hope and reality and being able to keep things in proper perspective and to kind of wrestle, as it were, that anxiety monster to the ground? And I call it that on purpose, Dr. Jans, but for a lot of folks, they just, they get that sense of they, they start to think, they start to worry, and it builds and grows. And all of a sudden, they feel as if they just can't turn their mind off. You alluded to this before the break of people that are dealing with sleepless nights, largely because we're worrying about things over which we have absolutely no control whatsoever. And maybe that's one of the most difficult aspects of facing anxiety, and that is that we don't have a lot of control over our circumstances, and so we feel utterly out of control, and as a result, anxiety gets the best of us. It does get the best of us. And one of the things that we all need to do is take a pause. We need to renew ourselves in a, in a spiritual sense. We've got to have things that we're renewing our mind. I can tell you that physical self-care, that would include nutrition and figuring out um, the great word exercise, but figuring out how am I going. It's so important when we're going through a period of significant chronic stress. That's what we've been doing here, <laughs> going on the third year and with all the unknowns so we've got to come back and go how do i care for my body how do i keep my mind healthy and we need to remember we need people so i would say have three key relationships 
that you're going to be, you know, maybe uh, praying with. It's the trusted relationships that you're going to say over this next year, 2022, I'm really going to develop these key relationships that are healthy, that we believe in one another, that we support one another. Uh, so to have those relationships, this is a time where we want to enrich our relationships and also find out how can I be of service to others? What do I, what can I do uh, now to really be a, of service to others? Um, and how can I help somebody? There'll be a person a day that you can uh, influence and, and, and be of help to. So developing key relationships that can provide us that support network that we can lean on, as well as the notion of focusing beyond ourselves by reaching out and helping others. And, and is it also important, in your opinion, Dr. Jans, for people to admit, for the to kind of give themselves permission to say, I'm scared, and to admit that openly? I mean, I, you know, normally people think, well, I just need to, you know, stiff upper lip, take the British approach, I'm not going to let it get to me. And, <laughs> and you wind up kind of bottling all those emotions inside. And I think a lot of Americans are, are fearful of one big thing. They're fearful of fear. They're fearful to admit that they're afraid of all of this. And I wonder if that ultimately ends up exacerbating the impact of the anxiety that that fear creates. Exactly. And, you know, the fear of the unknown and the fear of people, it causes us also to feel like there's something wrong with us. There's, I shouldn't be feeling this way. Um, people even jump to the leap, well, you know, even God can't love me. I'm not lovable. Uh, others won't uh, like me. And so we, it creates so much self-doubt. So that's important for us to look at go, okay, um, what do I need to do that's going to build? I need to be bold. I need to be courageous. I need to be wise. So this is a year of, uh, of really finding ourselves in a place of, of needing to renew uh, relationships, needing to renew uh, our physical and spiritual well-being. So this is a time of renewal. Let's talk about the spiritual well-being aspect for a moment. Uh, that, of course, is key. Um, but there are some folks that feel as if, and, and perhaps rightfully so, that the church is oftentimes ill-equipped to help people deal with many of these emotions. And by that, I mean that sometimes there's sort of the easy way out. We sort of, you know, not intentionally dismiss it, but we'll say, well, it's just, you know, just have faith in God. A perfect love casts out all fear. We quote a couple of select Bible uh, passages or say, well, I'll be praying for you. And, and we end up ultimately being dismissive. Are these emotions that are going to naturally disappear if we just are dismissive about them, either in terms of confronting them ourselves or in dealing with others? Yes, um, absolutely. By the way, um, I just want to say, if a person's suffering with this anxiety and it feels unbearable, there are a lot of people going through this right now, and there and we can walk through this. Um, the more we avoid anxiety, the more it increases, and uh, the more we do distractions, uh, escapism behaviors, alcohol, pills, uh, digital. The more we do escapism, also that will increase the anxiety. So I just know, you know, Craig, there are people hearing our, our voices that this is very real, and you may feel very alone in it. So don't be dismissive of it. And 
to seek out people that will support you, will allow you to emote, and, and, and in a great sense, I guess, then face a lot of these fears and the anxiety head on as opposed to trying to pretend as if it's not there or, as you point out, uh, use uh, coping mechanisms that are less than ideal, less than biblical, that ends up sort of anesthetizing the pain and frustration that the anxiety then can create as opposed to, in a healthy way, confronting it and pushing through it. Yes. Hmm? Folks want to get more information. We've mentioned, of course, about A Place well, of you know, Hope. I, I actually have some great articles and just some great information that's available on the website, aplaceofhope.com. That's a wonderful place for people to start. And as we mentioned, Dr. Jantz has written a number of best-selling books on a whole variety of topics. We mentioned, of course, that he's a, an expert in arenas of addiction and eating disorders, um, but but certainly, too, facing issues like anxiety and depression. This is something that, you know, as uh, I think we would all admit to, that it's been a rough year. It's been a rough couple of years. And rightfully so, we have concerns going into a brand new year. Will things be worse? Will things be better? Um, and, and, of course, we don't know the answer to those questions. But uh, finding a sense of community and support with others, um, building and nurturing those key relationships, focusing beyond ourselves, recognizing that it's okay to be afraid and to admit that you're having a difficult time, and in doing so to find that kind of support that can help pull you through uh, those moments. These are all important things that we need to be developing, not just to deal with um, big events like COVID and all of the attending challenges that it presents to all of us, but just the day-to-day life challenges that we all That's face. Right. Dr. Greg Jantz, again, online at aplaceofhope.com. You'll find all kinds of resources there. You can also order copies of Dr. Jantz's book through that website. Again, aplaceofhope.com. And we'll have to have you back again for a, a little deeper conversation, Dr. Jantz. I'm, I'm curious to go uh, into your new book, Social Media and Depression, which, boy, um, for people that get um, pulled into that screen and don't know how to hit the off button, and on an increasing basis for younger people as well, a very critical and timely topic, to be sure. Thank you. There's right. hope. There is hope. There is indeed. And so uh, don't be discouraged. Uh, confront the challenges that you are facing, and most importantly, uh, seek out that support and those relationships that can help guide you through. More information available, as Dr. Jantz mentions, lots of resources, including articles um, absolutely free for the uh, accessing by going to aplaceofhope.com. That's aplaceofhope.com. Our thanks to Dr. Greg Jantz for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. There was a campaign that begun last year, the final uh, moments of the congressional session, um, that managed to get some traction in the House, although so far steadfastly the Senate has uh, has shown uh, less likely to be enthusiastic over something called the PRO, the PRO Act. And on the surface, it's being touted by some within the Senate, including Bernie Sanders, as simply being pro-union. This is a way of encouraging employees for big groups like Amazon or Walmart to be able to effectively organize unions and to do so 
free of employer intimidation. But like a lot of things coming out of Washington, D.C., there's more than what meets the eye here. Let's get some details from Gabriella Hoffman, visiting fellow with the Independent Women's Forum. Gabriella, thanks so much for taking time to be with us. Happy New Year to you. And uh, if you would kind of pull back the curtain on some of the details that are not being talked about so publicly related to the PRO Act. Absolutely, Craig, and thank you for having me on the program, and Happy New Year to you as well. The PRO Act was actually inspired by a piece of legislation that is now law in California, also my home state originally, called Assembly Bill 5, which instituted an ABC test to make it increasingly difficult for workers to identify and file their tax work as independent contractors, essentially making every worker a default employee unless they can prove otherwise if they meet the three prongs of this ABC test. The PRO Act, however, takes that tenant and then adds all these other caveats as well to make it increasingly harder for people to work as independent contractors in what is becoming the freelance economy which is about 59 million workers strong, or about 36% of the workforce. In addition to an ABC test, the PRO Act, if it were to pass in Congress or be implemented by the Department of Labor, it would not only institute that ABC test, making it increasingly harder for people like myself to file as independent contractors and identify as independent contractors, it would completely do away with right to work, which kind of protects uh, your ability to not have to be coerced into joining a union if you don't want to. In addition, they would also create a lot of provisions making union membership conditional on employment. So if this were to pass uh, as presented, you wouldn't be able to work free of a union. And that's pretty much goes against worker freedom, uh, right to work, and kind of the labor laws that we have under the Taft-Hartley Act, which ensures that you're able to choose how to work without any interference. And right to work also allows people who want to join unions to join unions, too. It just means that you're not compelled to join unions if you yeah. don't want to. Yeah, there's a little bit of a gray area here, and I know that part of this is attempting to kind of deal with uh, what they consider to be aspects of the National Labor Relations Act that, uh, that were perhaps not anticipatory of the so-called gig economy that we have today. And you're, you're correct in pointing out that this has been a battle royale here in California because not everybody chooses to work a full-time job. Uh, not everybody wants to be there from 9 to 5. People like a sense of, of, you know, being their own boss, so to speak. They like the flexibility. It might be flexibility because they don't want to work that many hours or they got a family to care for, whatever the case might be. And uh, California California came in and said, no, we know better for you and your family than you do. We're going to force this upon you, uh, which is, has been a big disruptor of the so-called gig economy. And, and this essentially would then, in a, in a fashion, I suppose, Gabriella, codify that across the country then. Yes. If this were to pass in its current form as presented, it certainly would take AB5 national and include all those other components. And that's not even just the entirety of the legislation. I've combed through it. I've read what they're proposing to do. They would also, you know, let's say they get rid of right to work. They institute the ABC test. Now that employers, let's say, would have to work in concert with union bosses or union heads, essentially worker information is going to be available to these union bosses. And employers will have to supply private information like address, phone number, 
and other really sensitive details that they shouldn't have access to. And they could use it to perhaps intimidate workers who may not fully comply with the stipulations of the union membership. Maybe they're critical of the union that they're going to be forced to join and other things. So there are a lot of different components that are quite alarming, I think, to anyone regardless of politics. And what I see emerging from this issue, because I think your listeners should kind of prepare for what's to be ahead next week in the Senate on January 12th, the Senate is going to hear the renomination of the former wage and hour division administrator, David Wheel, who was openly chastised and attacked gig, gig economy uh, businesses. He's gone after independent contractors, changing rules in his agency, and he could implement various aspects of the PRO Act, including the ABC test, through regulatory prowess, as he has tried to do before. So even if they don't pass anything in Congress, they can use regulatory fiat through this administrator where he to be confirmed. And I actually think as much as I would hate it to pass either way, I think it's actually easier to undo by regulatory fiat than it would be Congress. So I'm trying to look at the silver lining with respect to that. But um, even if Congress weren't to implement this, we have to look to see what the Biden administration would do in their own way of trying to implement aspects of this because President Biden campaigned as the pro-labor president. He campaigned on the AB5 merits. He campaigned on wanting to see the PRO Act passed federally. He's endorsed both pieces of legislation. He's appointed Marty Walsh, who is currently at the helm of the Labor Department, who has said he supports the PRO Act as well. So they want to get labor policy done in this format before the midterm elections. That's certainly the case. So if they use regulatory means to implement aspects, that's likely what we could see, even in lieu of Congress weighing in on this issue. Yeah, and, and you know, that's always troubling because then ultimately you find out that there's a bunch of bureaucrats that are essentially effectively passing laws. Uh, you know, it, it's almost like Congress skirts its responsibility, you know, we we're do the light lifting, you do the heavy lifting, and then in the end, uh, if the whole thing explodes, it's easy for somebody who voted for such a bill to say, well, yeah, we, we, we just came up with the general concept, but it was the, it was the bureaucrats that really came up with the minutiae here that you're complaining about. And it's an easy way to sort of, you know, uh, in, in front of one's constituency, skirt responsibility. But it becomes very problematic because now it's setting the creation of laws not in the hands of legislators, but rather in the hands of a bunch of nameless, faceless, and totally unaccountable bureaucrats, which makes this you know, equally troubling. I mean, the, the, the point... Absolutely. Gabriella, of, of encouraging and allowing workers, if they so wish to unionize or to organize, to enjoin in uh, collective bargaining, I, I don't have a problem with that. But when suddenly now you're going to come up with a very complicated test, and we already have this in California, to try to determine what is and or who isn't an independent contractor versus an employee, that starts to get down into layers of minutia. Uh, that, frankly, is best left up to the employer and to the contractor themselves. But it seems as if uh, they want to do all they can, uh, almost seemingly, to expand the the union worker base. And I suspect, to a great degree, it's because it's looking they're looking at an expansion of potential voters. Am I right? Certainly. But also, it's actually a diminishing workforce that, unless government gives them more power, allows them to become more powerful under the PRO Act. They're actually estimated to gain about $3 billion for every two election year cycles 
monetarily, financially benefit unions that would be doing so. They they will gain financially from this law going into effect. So it will become more powerful, even though they are shrinking, actually, as a part of the workforce. Only 10.8% of the U.S. workforce is unionized. Like I mentioned earlier, 36% of the workforce is not unionized in terms of being part of the freelance economy, whether they're partaking in it full-time or part-time. And they're going against nature with wanting to push this piece of legislation or push a regulatory framework to make it harder to be an independent contractor. Actually, of all the metrics relating to the economy, the self-employed sector of that freelance portion actually grew to about 9.44 million in unincorporated self-employed people in the last year, actually over the 18 months of the pandemic. So they saw a net gain of 500,000 workers, and that's actually a pretty big increase, comparatively speaking, since the Great Recession started in 2008. And more and more people, according to the Pew Research Poll, are working as self-employed workers. A lot of people are really afraid of what is known as a great resignation, and yes, it is unfortunate that people are leaving the workforce in droves, uh, taking themselves out of the workforce. But I think a positive you can see from this is that 10 million people actually are contemplating leaving their traditional jobs for freelance or flexible work arrangements. That's not what's being discussed with respect to the Great Resignation. So the government wants to kind of quash this burgeoning workforce, of which I am a part of myself, because I'm my best negotiator. I feel I'm the most comfortable and adept to negotiate my rate, my retainer rate, and kind of the work constraints that I like to work and set up. But they can't go against nature, and when they do, a lot of people fight back when they do that. And I think you could see this kind of unify all factions of different political parties. I've spoken to people on the far left who don't like the PRO Act. They were very animated during AB5 passing, and they've become very alarmed about AB5-like bills being considered in other blue states. So you see kind of this unique alliance forming between Republicans, conservatives, Democrats, progressives, and others to oppose efforts to rewrite labor law in this really extreme fashion. So I'm optimistic that despite this push, we can see people coming together in a really divisive time to protect kind of this last refuge of entrepreneurship, because if you try to um, to deter decentralization in this form, it's going to be increasingly harder for people to start their businesses because someone could start as a self-employed person, one-person business, and then maybe start a small business, uh, transition to creating a brick-and-mortar shop, and then maybe one day if they have enough employees from that small business, they can become a big business themselves. So it's always a starter point. I think people forget being your, your own boss has the potential to grow to a big business, or you could be really successful as a self-employed person. Well, there's another part of this, too, that, that is particularly troubling that perhaps is not getting nearly as much coverage as it ought to, and that is the fact that there's been a lot of efforts down through the years to try to obtain for union employees the right to be able to opt out of paying union dues, at least that portion of the dues that do not go, do not go directly toward so-called collective bargaining. And this would allow unions to not only collect dues beyond the collective bargaining aspect of a union agreement, but to collect dues from people even if they're not part of or represented by the union. So you can have a group of people that work within a company that are not represented by the union, but by virtue of the fact that they work for the same company, the union would be empowered to still collect dues. Yeah, 
That's not exactly looking out for the best interests of the workers now, is it? Well, we appreciate um, helping to pull back the curtain on this, Gabriella. Thanks so much for the time today. Gabriella Hoffman is again a visiting fellow with the Independent Women's Forum. Information available on the web at iwf.org. 647 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as we were discussing earlier with Dr. Jantz, it's a brand new year, but a lot of the same old anxieties and one of the areas um, of concern that's uh, following us into 2022 is the rise of harassment um, and downright persecution of believers across the planet. And we've seen this uh, certainly in parts of the African continent, over the last several years with the rise in Islamic extremism. Um, While we may not be directly feeling the effects as much in the West as we have in years past, believe me, it's there and just bubbling down below the surface. So let's talk about some of the countries that are key hotbeds for all of this and how we can be praying. Joining me is Todd Nettleton, host of Voice of the Martyrs radio program. And Todd, great to have you with us. Thanks so much. It's good to be with you. This, this is an issue that, you know, every year the State Department comes out with a report related to um, religious extremism and harassment and persecution. And uh, that list, uh, you, you would hope over time, would, uh, would decrease in number. Uh, sadly, though, over recent years, we've seen an uptick. And this kind of tends to derange the gambit of not just cultural and familial harassment if, say, you are an individual who declares to be a a Christian believer coming from an Islamic family. We know certainly that there are uh, both family and cultural pressures in that arena, but a lot of what's on this latest list as we head into 2022 is also institutional, meaning state-sponsored harassment. Yeah, it is. And and persecution comes from, from many different places. Uh, we talk about restricted nations, which are places where it is the government who is the persecutor. And then we talk about hostile areas. And that's places where, you know, maybe the government, at least they pay lip service to religious freedom, but maybe there are terrorist groups. Maybe there are other actors in that situation who are persecuting Christians and actively seeking out those who would follow Christ. And so that's how we divide. But but when you talk about, we're talking about more than 70 countries where that happens, where our Christian brothers and sisters are persecuted for doing what we do every week, you know, gathering together with other believers, having a Bible, uh, praying, claiming the name of Jesus, uh, they pay a, a severe price for that. Now, some of the nations on this list are you know, sort of the list of usual suspects. Uh, certainly, historically, this kind of persecution of believers has long taken place in countries like Vietnam, North Korea, communist China. Uh, but there are some places on the list that I, I kind of found a, a bit surprising. For example, one of the areas that's considered to be hostile toward Christians includes Mindanao in the Philippines. Yeah, Mindanao is in an area where uh, there is a radical Islamist presence. In fact, they have been given sort of an autonomous region uh, where they have control, where they can make the rules, and they absolutely do not want the church to grow. They do not want Muslims to come to know Jesus Christ. And so 
there is persecution. And like you say, it's, it's not a place that we would immediately think of and say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a place where Christians are suffering. Uh, but they absolutely are. Uh, and that's one of the great things about our new global prayer guide from the Voice of the Martyrs is it, it lets people know all of these places. It lets them know who are the persecutors. How hard is it to get a Bible? Some of those the kind of basic information that can help us pray more knowledgeably for our brothers and sisters. And, and that's the first thing they ask us to do is to pray for them. Now, delineate for me, if you would, Todd, the, the clear difference between those nations listed in this new prayer guide that come under the, the hostile arena versus those that come under the restricted arena. I suppose under that, that restricted badge are, are largely countries where there's not only cultural and familial harassment, as well as government-sponsored. Am I right? Right. The, the, the big differentiator is... Is it the government that's doing the persecution? Is, is somebody being arrested by the police and they're being taken to court and brought up on charges by the government? That's what we would call a restricted nation. Uh, then you look at some, some places that we would call hostile areas, uh, like, for instance, Chiapas in, in southern Mexico. Sure, the, the Mexican government says you have religious freedom, but in some of those villages, if you say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, you might get kicked out of the village. Your house might be burned down or destroyed. And so that's not, you know, that's a hostile area, not a, it's not government-driven, but it is very real persecution. And the degree to which Christians can suffer, as you point out, also runs the gambit. It can go from harassment, uh, being kicked out of a job, losing one's housing or apartment, particularly in in countries where a lot of that is state-provided, communist nations most predominantly. But there are other places where the degree of persecution gets really severe. I mean, for example, if you're caught in North Korea simply with a Bible in your possession, uh, you're looking at not only multiple years of doing a hard time in a quote-unquote re-education camp, but there, they also penalize multiple generations. I mean, it, it, it's serious business. It is very serious. And North Korea, probably the most closed country on earth, the hardest place to be a Christian. Because, as you say, if, if you're caught with the Bible, it's not only you that's going to a prison camp, it's also your parents and your children. Because the North Korean government understands that Christianity is a threat to the government. The government says... The Kim family are divine beings. You should pray to them. If you're praying to Jesus Christ, you're, you're not praying to the Kim family. And so it's not just a matter of, hey, you know, we don't believe that here or we don't do that here. It literally is treason against the Kim government. And that's why those punishments are so harsh for someone who is found to follow Christ or found in possession of a Bible. And while some of these fears may be may be wholly misplaced in in terms of government reaction, they look historically at events like the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe, the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union, and the positive impact as Christianity came into these areas where there had been such a spiritual vacuum for, in some cases, decades. And and they misinterpret that and think, okay, the threat here is Christians and the church may come up against us. 
And so with that, they really double down in a sense. This new guide as we head into 2022 um, to help people understand how to pray and what countries are in particular the most difficult for Christians. How is that available for folks to get a copy of? It is available for free. We This is a tool we want Christians to have. The Voice of the Martyrs website is persecution.com, and right at the top of the page is the free prayer guide. You just click on that link, give us your name and address. We will send a copy to you, again, free of charge. We want people to be able to pray throughout 2022 for our persecuted family members. And we need to be keeping this top of mind. You know, we we sometimes during the year will focus on the persecuted church for several days or a week here and there, and then we kind of go back to business as usual. But the suffering that people face, uh, again, whether it be cultural, familial, um, style harassment up to and including institutional or state-sponsored harassment, persecution, up to imprisonment and death, it's very real. And there's a growing number of countries on this list that we as the church in the West need to be praying for. I mean, we we oftentimes toss around words like persecution here um, without really seriously understanding what that means in a country like the United States because the boss came in and said, take that cross off your desk, and we call that persecution. While it's something that certainly doesn't um, support our First Amendment rights, the kind of persecution that Todd Nettleton and I are speaking of is significant persecution where people, simply because they name Jesus as Lord and Savior, can lose their jobs, can be embarrassed out of family associations, up to and including imprisonment, and in some cases, even death for their faith. That's not just something you read about in the New Testament as the story of what the first century church went through. That kind of persecution is going on to this very day. How can you be praying and what countries can you be praying for? Inside the pages of this new global prayer guide, yours free for the asking, just go online to persecution.com and get yours today. Again, that's persecution.com. And we want to encourage you to daily be praying for the persecuted church across the globe. Todd Nettleton, host of Voice of the Martyrs Radio. As always, Todd, we appreciate the time and the update. Again, to get your free copy of the Global Prayer Guide provided by our friends at Voice of the Martyrs, simply go online to persecution.com. That's persecution.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 